I'm sure all business owners are looking forward to 2023, trying to identify opportunities that will enable them to grow their network, grow the business and improve their knowledge. Fortunately, we here at Downtown in Business are hosting two fantastic national conferences, which will help you hit all three objectives. On the 9th of February, we're at Edgebaston in Birmingham for our Planning, Property and Regeneration Conference. Speakers include Andy Street, who is the Mayor of the West Midlands Combined Authority, Joanne Rowney, Chief Executive of Manchester City Council, James Lewis, the leader of Leeds City Council, Danielle Gillespie, Executive Director of Homes England, Tom Stannard, the Chief Executive of the Local Authority, Salford, and Tim Johnson, who's the CEO of Wolverhampton Council. Many other speakers coming along as well and more keynote speakers to be announced. So that's our Property Regeneration Conference, Thursday the 9th of February, 2023, at Edgebaston, Birmingham. Following month, the 2nd of March, we're in Liverpool for the Business Innovation and Tech Conference. This is Changemakers Live 2023, some of the most exciting people around the country talking to us about what their ideas are to solve the many challenges ahead as we move into the new year and, of course, beyond. We have Wes Streeting, who's the Shadow Health Secretary, with us. We have Lord Andrew Adonis, the mastermind behind HS2, an advisor at one time to Tony Blair and to Gordon Brown. Jessica Bowles, the Director of Strategy for Bruntwood, is also joining us, as is Colin Sinclair, the Chief Executive of Liverpool's Knowledge Quarter. Ryan Wayne, the Policy Director of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, will be talking to us as well, as will Chrissy Wolf, a social media influencer and somebody who is an expert in terms of the Gen Z generation. So join us for those two fantastic conferences. If you want to find out more about them, all the details can be found on our website. That's all the W's, downtownandbusiness.com. In the downtown den with me today, uh, a man who I met a quarter of a century ago. I know I don't look old enough, even if he does. It's Steve Broomhead. Steve is the Chief Executive of Warrington Borough Council. He's also the Chairman of Rugby League Club Warrington Wolves. But he and I met when he was still, back then, Chief Executive of Warrington Council. And I was the deputy leader of Lancashire County Council and the leader of the Northwest Regional Assembly. Steve went on to become the chief executive of the Northwest Development Agency. And obviously, during those 25 years of us knowing each other, we've done many things together, both at a political level and also at a business level too. Steve, through the Development Agency, was one of the early adopters and supporters of downtown and business, for which I will be forever grateful. He was also the man that came up with the famous phrase at one of our City of Liverpool Business Award ceremonies at Sefton Park Palmhouse, that downtown was, his words, the business club with attitude. So here's me chewing the fat with my old mucker, Steve Broomhead. I'm sure this is a podcast that will be of interest to anyone who is in business, but particularly those who have an eye on what's happening 
in the world of local government. Steve Broomhead in the downtown den. Enjoy the listen. Welcome back to the Downtown Den podcast. This is episode six in our current series. I'm delighted to be joined by Steve Broomhead. Steve is the Chief Executive of Warrington Borough Council. He's also Chair of Warrington Walls Rugby League Club. He and I go back a long, long way, probably about 25 years, if not more. And our paths first crossed, Steve, when... The Northwest Regional Assembly was going. I think you were still chair at that time, sorry, chief exec at that time of, of Warrington. Uh, and you ended up, sadly for you, being the officer who was looking after me when I was chairman of the uh, the assembly. Well, um, Shepherd in you, Frank, was um, like Shepherd in a thousand sheep <laughs> when, all the, when all the gates down. But yeah, that's how we first met. And um, yeah, I think that at that time you were the deputy leader of the county council, weren't yes. you? And you've um, managed to make that transformation from being a politician into what is a very um, respected business leader extremely well in rights over the years, Frank. So it's been good to know you all these years and always done things together, honestly and creatively, haven't we? Yeah, we've maintained a, a really strong relationship, but as you say, collaborated on lots of things. And you were one of the early adopters of downtown and business, and we'll come back to that in a second. But I just wanted to take you back to that period of the assembly. It's not long after um, the assembly sort of established itself in the Northwest. And just to explain to people, that was all the leaders from the Northwest, plus the chief executives advising those leaders. Strong business leadership group as well, led by Len Collinson, sadly now passed, but a fabulous business leader. And also the voluntary sector and trade unions, a really big organisation that had ambitions to become an elected assembly. And then you went off, of course, to become chief executive of the Northwest Regional Development Agency. And again, done some fabulous work there that we will get into. But do you ever look back at that time and think we as a country, not just as sort of the Northwest, missed an opportunity in not allowing that to develop as a governance model, because as I say, we fully anticipated that we'd go on as an assembly to be a fully elected parliament similar to, to what happened in Scotland and Wales. Yeah, I, I do think, um, you know, you look back at that period, it's about devolution with uh, democratic involvement, wasn't it? That was the model. Um, they tried the referendum for it in the northeast of England and they failed and as a result of that, we ended up simply with a, uh, a quango. Uh, nine quangos, RDAs, which I was pleased with the Chief Exec from 2003. So I do think that could have been developed more as John Prescott's uh, brainchild, remember? John was driving it very, very strongly. It's interesting now when we talk about devolution across the country. It is devolution with uh, in the preferred model is the elected mayor. Um, and uh, that's one element of uh, devolution with involvement. It's a particular model. This model was like, as you say, having your own responsibility for fiscal fundraising and uh, having much more responsibility in the in the northwest through democratic means, and that was lost at that point. I think that it was a missed opportunity, as I say, and I also think that there was a mistake from our perspective in allowing the northeast to go first, because I actually think there was more support in the northwest. Mm. 
there was this idea, oh, well, if the North, you know, the Geordies don't go for it, no one's nowhere else is going to actually go for it. But I think we'd created such a strong organisation and momentum in the Northwest. You were leading the regional development agency in a way that I think was very innovative. And if you look back now at some of those initiatives, you know, people will still say one of the reasons the region's infrastructure and economic growth was so successful at the time was because of some of the interventions that, that you guys made. Yeah, well, I arrived at the development agency in 2003, and its early history from around about 1998 onwards is there was a lot of process, there was a lot of talk and not a lot of action. I remember going to the 2003 annual conference of the RDA and um, I think people thought I was going to arrive as dressed as Elvis. A little less conversation, a little more action was my theme. And that's what I tried to do really, respecting the fact that we were dealing with investment of you know, taxpayers' money and trying to rebalance the economy. But I wanted to make sure we delivered on the ground as quickly as we possibly can. So there were some major projects which have led to other things, Media City, all the work that's been done here on the back of the private sector, regeneration schemes, uh, the arena and boost of liberal capital culture 2008 was very, very significant. But basically, I just wanted to get things done in the right way, but deliver on the ground. And that's been, I suppose, if I had a tattoo somewhere on my body frame, that's what it was, just, let's just get it done yeah. with as well as a way. It, it's all about delivery with you. I, I know that from somebody who's known you for a long time. And I also know that you've always reached out to the business community and sought genuine partnership and collaboration. So clearly, you know, you've got big backgrounds in local government. As the chief executive of the regional development agency, you will have inevitably been working very closely with local authorities across the Northwest as well. But during that period, you maintain those close links with the business community through something called the Private Sector Partners, actually, which was, again, um, Len Collinson used to chair that group. But then I also think back and reflect on the fact that you know, the Northwest Regional Development Agency supported pro-Manchester, pro-Liverpool. You've always been key to develop those networks, liaise, collaborate with them, haven't you? Yeah, and um, you know, the CBI, Federation of Small Businesses, the Chambers of Commerce, all of those organisations, and then you know, sector-based organisations, well, for trades, always try to understand where they're coming from, as well as work with businesses themselves. Why you were so good for me, Frank, was that you were different. You were almost we were clubbable at the time. Again, the people didn't want to go to Chamber of Commerce meetings. You know, we did the sexy networking before that got done by the ethics police. <laughs> and uh, the business club with attitude is, I think, the phrase we came up with. And that's where you were. You had a different attitude towards working in partnership with what was the development agency and government, really. I always tried to maintain that uh, approach and make sure you listen to what the issues in business are. Oh, I certainly try to do that in my job at Warrington now. We were certainly grateful of your support in the early days. We celebrate this week, actually, uh, the 20th Liverpool Awards, would you believe? And Northwest Development Agency, very early adopter of downtown Liverpool, as we were then, and headline sponsor. Um, and I think that, you know, the reason that we were able to convince you was because you, as I say, have always had that, instinct to say we've, we've got to work in partnership with lots of different sort of business groups and 
as you've said there, you saw us as bringing perhaps a different dynamic, a different sort of entrepreneur and individual into the conversation. Well, I've always liked edgy organisations, edgy people. You know, you're one of them, Frank. I mean, Tony Wilson was another one. Yeah, uh, offered a different alternative view on what this ambition might want to achieve and what its ambitions are. So I've always had that bit of me. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, I do take risks, but I've calculated risks as well. And um, you know, I've enjoyed uh, my career so far. It's not over yet. Got more to do yet. Uh, but it's really been good to work with you, Frank, and see you know, downtown develop, and not only just in Liverpool, but almost if you're giving out your national organisation. Uh, and so, you know, I would say Steve back to winner, but that's just my opinion. Um, it, it just in terms of the development agency, its success in this part of the world, again, you and I are well aware that regional development agents weren't necessarily seen as proactive, as effective in other parts of the country. And so by 2010, we get the new coalition government in and they decide to throw the whole baby out with the bathwater, scrap all the development agencies, bring in local enterprise partnerships. (laughs) My opinion is they're nowhere near as effective, nor do they have the resource sort of responsibilities that RDAs have. Nevertheless, from your perspective, what did you think back at that time? Did you think it was time for transformation or would you have liked to have seen the government get behind a bit more regionalism? Well, the RDAs were tasked with the rebalance of the economy north and south, which is now referred to you know, that um, much um, uh, um, disliked phrase by the business community at the moment called levelling up. I mean, we were the levelling up organisation. But unfortunately, the government decided to have RDAs in the south, I mean, London. And I uh, never really understood that um, because it was difficult at the best of times to close the disparity between the economic uh, uh, outputs in the North versus the South. So that was always a fundamental problem. And it was probably one of the reasons why we were judged to fail. We were, we were evaluated in 2010 and we not closed the gap as quickly as the government wanted us to at the time. Um, I remember Eric Pickles coming to see me in 2010, just before the election in the May. And um, he was a Conservative um, minister at the time. He ended up running what was called the old Department of Local Government. Uh, and he came to see me as part of the campaign show. He came in the office and he said, good morning, uh, good morning, Mr. Brown. He said, um, I'm here to abolish you. And I said, abolish me or the organisation. He said both. And of course, that's actually what happened. Although there was a bit of a renaissance in the conversation with uh, Vince Cable, at the time, where they decided they wanted to try and keep the RDAs in the north. And um, but that ultimately failed. The RDAs were abolished and we were replaced by the 39, or the nine RDAs, 39 local enterprise partnerships who didn't have any statutory powers, didn't have the levels of resources we have for investment and um, had a very complicated governance structure and the geography was far too difficult. Um, in Cheshire, we've had a good eye. Good lap actually, we had a good relationship with the lap in Cheshire, uh, but it just weren't the same. Just weren't the same at all. Yeah. And didn't have that big strategic vision because obviously yeah. they're looking after much smaller ge- geographies. Yeah, five, five laps in the north northwest, yeah. all um, say they're working cooperatively, but there's always a degree of competition be- between. Them. I used to have to manage competition 
in the northwest, but within the boundaries of the RDA, which is the whole of the northwest. You were able to create a framework, and everybody had to play within that. Well, framework. We had a plan. We had yeah. a plan because the regional economic strategy. That's another thing. You know, I wanted to re- reduce it from a like the telephone directory for Beijing and Shanghai combined to something that is prioritised and things have got deliverables in it because everything's a priority, nothing's a priority, nothing ever gets done. So that I wanted to make a, have a plan that was had vision in it, but we got real priorities that we can performance manage every year. Our coffee's just arriving from uh, my wonderful office manager, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Um, so while she uh, dishes out the coffee, thanks for that. Let me take you beyond RDAs, because at that point, you know, you've been a very high-profile, very successful leader of the regional assembly, sorry, regional development agency. Um, and for that to be sort of taken away because of a government diktat, in a sense, because I think if there's been a, a meaningful consultation within the region, and certainly here, the development agency would have continued to operate because you had fabulous support. Was there every uh, an occasion where you thought, actually, I'm going to go off and do something in the private sector, or we're always fixed on staying within the public sector and making a difference there? Well, I think about me, Frank, I've always had more than one job. I mean, um, uh, I um, the point I was leaving the RDA in 2011, 2012, I was already involved in the rugby club in Warrington, which is private sector. I was also chairman of Recycling Lives, which is a business yeah. based in Preston, which is um, a recycling business, but driven by social value and actually operates as a social enterprise. So I've always been involved you know, with other things outside of my my main employment, making sure I, you know, check the boundaries, make the necessary declarations. So, um, yeah, I did um, think for a while, you know, I ended up working in the University of Rubble Home University, became the chair of entrepreneurial education. But I always wanted to work with the private sector and make sure any ambitions I have are through the ambitions of the organisation I've been in charge of. And so... Was the decision to return to Warrington Borough Council an easy one? Because people say, don't they, you should never go back. Well, yeah, it's been like football management, Frank. You know, you're going to get Everton soon. I think you're going to have a new manager soon, Frank. You never go back. No, it was an easy decision. I mean, I got the phone call. I was quite happy, you know, portfolio management, doing different things. Uh, one or two of the non-executive roles I had including the National Football Museum, which I was there from day one on when it was based at Deepdale and Preston. Um, but I took a phone call from the then leader of the council who said, Steve, we're in the shit. You come back to help out. And I said, yeah, I'll do that, uh, Terry, on the basis that it's uh, six months and it's part-time. And um, six months is now ten and a half years. <laughs> and it is allegedly part-time. Which is why I find myself with you in the downtown today on a Monday morning. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look part-time from the outside looking in, that's for sure. Um, so I suppose the obvious question is, when, when was your first stint at Warrington? Uh, from, 90, from 1997 to 2003, and we became a unitary council in 1998 from the old Cheshire County Council. Now, that was an interesting experience. It was like a 
by acrimonious divorce. Um, I once went to go and see the, um, the former chief executive of the county council uh, and um, to learn, really, because I've not wor I worked with local government in my career, previously been a college principal twice, but never worked inside it. So um, I went down to County Hall in Chester to try and understand what he saw the challenges for my job in Warrington as we were leaving six months later. And he kept me waiting outside, which I didn't mind. I got inside the room, typical psychology. He was on a higher chair, I was on a low chair. He said to me, Mr. Brewman, you're never going to make this work. You're never going to make the unity of work, council work. And that was the biggest motivator I ever had, you know, before I said under my breath, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know it is incredible where you get your inspiration from as people who try and knock you down, you think, yeah, but I'm going to prove you wrong. Um, and I suppose from, from then on, you know, Warrington obviously became a big part of your life, didn't it? Because even the RDA was, was based in Warrington. So you've been there a heck of a long time. Um, what are the sort of challenges that you had then that you wish you had now? And I say that somewhat facetiously, but You'll know where I'm coming from. We thought when we were in local government during the Thatcher years, uh, and even during the early days of, of New Labour, that we were hard done by. But I tell you what, I bet you'd take that back now, wouldn't you, as an agenda in comparison to what you're dealing with today? Yeah, I mean, you know, local government has um, never, I think, been given total respect by any government, Labour or Conservative, over the, for what it what it does in terms of providing local services and the demands and pressures that exist on those um, councils deliver those services. And it's a very short route, you know, from the yeah, from the iPad or the email of a, of a citizen to the chief executive. People in civil service often forget that. Um, and people can be quite unforgiving if they don't get the services. The thing they deserve, but the big issue has been the financing. The financing over the years has fallen um, probably for local government by 30% since 2011-2012. And from my point of view, I knew that when I was arriving back in the job, and rather than just moan about it, and obviously you've got politicians who try and put the matter right, you have to do something about it. Hence why at Warrington we've embarked on what is seen as a rather ambitious um, uh, commercial agenda, um, not without risk uh, in terms of uh, investments in property, investment in a solar farm, investment in a bank, wholesale investment, basically I'm investing in return model to generate additional income for the frontline services of the council. And uh, every year, for the last three years, um, touching wood here, it's given us net £23 million. It's how much money we wouldn't have had. That would mean the services would have to be either ended or, or changed. You know, there might not be a grass-cutting regime, there might not be public library service, there might, might not be the levels of support for social care. They're the things that matter to people. And um, yeah, we, we have had a very strong commercial agenda, too strong for some people, really. As I say, it always, always has to be risk assessed. You do your due diligence before you, you, you sign away to buy uh, an investment property. But when people are listening to this, I think there's a need for them to appreciate. There's little or no personal motivation for you other than you believe that you've got to try and 
raise that money to reinvest into the services that you clearly care about, you're passionate about making a difference. But if you're a local government officer, there's no upside really to that because nobody's banging on your door going, that's fantastic, Steve. £23 million for our new services. Here you go, mate. Here's a gong or here's an extra however much cash uh, as a bonus. But if it goes wrong, bloody hell, you know, there's a massive downside, isn't there? And I think that's one of the problems that we've got in local government because if I'm sat in the chief executive's chair, I'm not seeing many upsides to those sort of risk-taking abilities that you've demonstrated over the years. Yeah, but if you don't deliver the services, if you don't have the £23 million, it's an even bigger problem to have, in my view. So you've got to have um, some faith in your advisors, some faith in the people who you're working with to come to the right decisions to make those investments. Yeah, it is a fact. There are some people in Warrington who don't, don't understand why that is the case. You know, And the commercial agenda doesn't suit some people. But they're the very people who never produce their own budget. Wouldn't tell you how you'd find that £23 million for those services. So you do have to be brave, but not stupid. I mean, I've seen councils that have been brave and stupid. Uh, they've made mistakes with their commercial agenda. And there has to be, you know, checks and balances in terms of what you're doing. But uh, it's been absolutely the right thing to do. Um, but it requires another set of efforts, really. For me, the council is a community business. I try along with the leader of the council run it as a community business. The shareholders are the 58 councillors, in my opinion, uh, who uh, should be part of the decisions which we reach to make those commercial investments. What you're saying, you've raised north of 20 million through those commercial investments, which is obviously a great achievement. You've suffered a 30% drop in income on average local government has. You wake up to the newspaper headlines over the weekend and you see that the Chancellor once again is targeting cuts, and you know those cuts are going to fall heavily on local government. At what point does local government cease to be able to operate effectively? Well, we'll get to a point, uh, I predict, Frank, within the year, the council will be collapsing, not through poor leadership and poor governance, of which we've, you know, we've seen that um, in certain parts of the northwest. In fact, we're a city where they have that issue at the moment. Uh, best of luck to Theresa Grant to stabilise and put it right. But if you if you if you lose the money, uh, you've got some big issues. And I mean, at the moment, there probably will be further cuts to public service and to council budgets. That's going to be very difficult. It won't be through the failure of the government. It'll be through the financial crisis. There's already a semi-financial crisis in the world of social care, and at that point, you know, perhaps government will actually realise how important local governments and councils are when they find that some councils basically are going bankrupt. And, and over the years, Frank, one of the things I've noticed is that councils have worked really hard to actually cover up the issues of underfunding. Um, in many ways, that's been our problems. You know, we haven't really declared it in the way perhaps we should have done. We've just got on with it, shrugged our shoulders and got on with it. And we're getting to the point now, and I don't wish to be alarmist, where that's no longer going to be the case going forward. I also think that there's not necessarily an appreciation of the diversity and breadth of the issues that local authorities have to get involved in. And also, when a government makes an announcement, although it's the government that are saying, we're going to adopt this policy and that policy, the people who are picking up the consequences of those announcements 
a lot of the time are local councils. And I was just saying, as uh, I, I rushed in this morning, um, having sort of been around to the school where my daughter goes collecting stuff for, for, for Ukrainians, uh, and you were saying, you know, there's another issue that local government has had to pick up and it's not necessarily being managed in the best way. And it's those hidden service provisions sometimes, Steve, isn't it, that perhaps people don't understand, appreciate the pressures that you guys are under. Yeah, I mean, councils have to be corporate organisation, balancing place and people services, making sure we've got an ecology approach to both, whereas government is massively siloed. It's a set of tribes, not one team down in Whitehall. And um, when you come to the issue of asylum seekers, I mean, the Ukrainians are owned, I think, by the Department of Leveling Up. Uh, other refugees um, are owned uh, by the Department of Health. And it goes on and on and on. And they have different schemes and different approaches. So what we try to do is obviously work out what the arrangements are best suited at a more local level. But you do feel you're doing a continuous puzzle with Whitehall because of this tribal um, approach and this siloed approach. And given the fact that, you know, successive governments, as you say, have always had in place, you know, had social inclusion agendas when it was New Labour, Cameron had the big society, Boris Johnson introduces this new term, levelling up. But at no point do I sense that they see local government as a genuine partner in actually addressing some of those issues. But it's the obvious place to go. I mean, I keep coming back to a big agenda that's been an agenda since you and I met, which is skills. And again, I know an agenda you're passionate about because of your background in education. And it's not for lack of resource necessarily, but it's poorly directed, some of that money. And again, we have this patchwork quilt of delivery from place to place. For me... That's an area where devolution just makes so much sense, but the government will not release the power, the responsibilities, the resources that you need to do that. It goes back to enrolment, Frank. I mean, the, the civil servants uh, need to learn to work in partnership to design schemes and programmes and develop policy together rather than impose policy on councils and other organisations. And um, they simply don't do that. They talk about it, but they don't, don't do that. Let's take an example uh, currently in terms of the support for Ukrainian families, um, hosts and guests. If it is, if it right at the start of the programme, they actually asked local government to get involved in the design, we would have told them that after six months, perhaps relationships, whatever reason, would break down between the hosts and the, and the guests. And that's what's happening. So a third of my 236 Ukrainian guests are going to have to find somewhere else to live with their families very, very soon. And we're then left with that as an issue to deal with. They've walked away from in the government. And, you know, we could have told them that would have happened and we could have put in perhaps some, you know, mitigation measures to ensure that we got the right, the level, uh, right sort of safety net in place. Yeah. And it's those unforeseen consequences that and local knowledge that you guys have that they just don't take account of in white school. Yeah, I mean, it just has to be, you know, we're willing to be involved and go back, you know, to partnership, uh, a partnership approach, but it doesn't work like that. And plus, there's an arrogance sometimes with the civil servants, so they always know best. And that arrogance depends on which department you, you're dealing with. I could give you a ranking of arrogance, Frank, but uh, um, uh, um, 
Well, that started at the top. Number one will be the DFE, Department of Education. Yeah. I work my way down. You do hear that a lot. Um, it seems to be a battle between the DFE and the Treasury from time to time, but we, we'll put that aside and I'll just ask you this question in terms of how that might improve because obviously in the northwest we have two elected mayors. We have one in Liverpool City Region, Steve Rotherham, and then in Greater Manchester, a politician, I think it'd be fair to say, is probably the best known local politician in the country, Andy Byrne. Um, but we haven't got elected mayors in Cheshire, in Lancashire, in Cumbria. Are counties unable to adopt that model of governance, do you think? Um, well, there's a lot, been a lot of conversations, certainly in, in Cheshire and Lancashire, the two places I know the most. Uh, and that conversation is around, first of all, what's in it for the, for the area and for the place and for the people? But what can the place and the people do for the government as well? It's a two-way stream and a lot of conversation around that. And certainly in Cheshire, there's no mind around some form of county deal or devolution model. The sticking point is often about the leadership and governance and whether or not an elected mayor suits a particular place. Um, for me, it's a bit of irrelevance because Andy and Steve have shown they can do the job in the right way and councils have not been usurped in terms of their powers and their responsibilities. The powers of Andy Bird were actually quite constrained, and the same with Steve Rotherham. Uh, so the mayoral model does work. Um, it's also very convenient for government to have that mayoral model. The basically the red box goes to Steve and Andy, not to in Manchester ten you know, council leaders or in Merseyside six council leaders. So I'd like to see that debate move forward. Um, we've had Phil Redmond, rookie, and another thing going around the county of Cheshire, talking to people what they understand by levelling up, which has been really interesting because you know people don't really understand what it does mean. But then they move on to the model of devolution. Everybody wants to see more powers being given from Whitehall. We are the most centralised government in probably in Europe, really. More powers have been passed down, along with appropriate resources. So I'm hoping that debate will continue and it will culminate in some form of arrangement, probably in the middle of next year, after the all-out elections of all of my councils in Cheshire. That's interesting. So some progress you think will be made? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's been a lot of debates um, you know, for and against the mayoral model. Uh, you know, people are trying to work out what it means for them. But I think you know, it's all about decentralisation and getting powers away from central government. So we're back to where we were at the start of this conversation, Frank, about you know, the concept of the regional assembly. You know, in politics and in policy terms, things go around in circles, and I see it coming around again after the best part of nearly 40 years. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there in the end, Steve. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get there in the end. Okay, let's leave um, local government to one side for a second uh, and let's get the ball out, but not the football, that other funny-shaped ball, because I, I've mentioned in passing your involvement as chair of Warrington Wolves. Um, obviously, rugby league, like many other sports, suffered an horrendous time through COVID, hasn't got the big books that the Premier League has. I think often, again, we forget how much teams below that upper tier have struggled. You know, if you look at the even championship clubs and the financial state there, 
But in terms of that, you know, again, first of all, how did you get involved? Uh, and sort of secondly, what word do you think uh, the game is? You know, what's the state of rugby league in this country at the moment? Well, the first thing, I mean, uh, in Warrington, the um, rugby league is in the DNA of the town. Um, uh, used to be, we used to think about IKEA or Vladivar Vodka. Now it's the Warrington Wolves. Um, I got involved. I broke the deal for the new stadium uh, with Tesco and Terry Lee. He was a good scouser. He was a CEO back um, uh, back in 2001. The deal was, was done. So I got, I got involved then. And it's been a joy to be part of it, really. And this is, again, a, a sporting business with a real good community dimension to it. And it's been great to work with the owner, Simon Moran of SGM Concerts, Concert, Williams uh, Concert, so to be his chairman for over uh, 11 years. Um, so that's been a, you know, a good business partnership. The game itself, I think, is at a crossroads, as you're saying, particularly post-COVID. Government support for the game has been very good in terms of uh, loans and business support. But the game, I think, has been really helped by a salary cap of just over £2 million, which has been rigorously enforced for many years. And it's levelled up the game, actually, so you can't simply buy success. People ask me, would a salary cap ever work in football? I like to think it probably should do. It probably won't because of the fact that people are so greedy and have their own ambitions and are so basically so wanting their own self-fulfillment through the ownership of their own clubs. So um, rugby league, from a business model point of view, has done all the right things, but it's at a crossroads really because of where we're at COVID-wise. The salary cap has worked, but some clubs basically need become much more business-like, much more perhaps me, social media savvy, which is the thing we're trying to do very hard with the Warrington Wolves. So um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Um, but for me, it's not just been the game on the pitch. I've enjoyed being part of the business of sport with it and to see how it operates on on the boardroom side of things. Yeah, and presumably you get, you know, up close and personal with some very, very successful athletes. And I just wonder... You know, in terms of mindset, psychology, are the things that you've learned through that role that you've been able to take into your other working life? Yeah, well, you know, the ambitions of young players, sometimes they make sure that they're grounded. One of the first things I did when I became the chairman changed the contract of employment of the players because I was noticing that at the end of a career of a rugby league player, depending on what position you play, you finish in the early mid, the latest year mid, 30s, we're ending up in very low-value jobs at the end of that, haven't done any career planning. So I insist as part of the contract of employment, six hours a week, and they go to college or carry out some sort of community involvement in a community project. And that's also been good because the players are then part of the community. They're not protected behind a darkened glass or a bulletproof coach, which is what you have in football these days. They are actually part of the community. And that's paid dividends, and so the players are now you know, building much better careers for when they finish playing. And I've been good to be part of that journey. Uh, and so you said earlier, just sort of as a throwaway remark, um, I think I've achieved quite a bit, and I think that's an understatement. Um, but there's more to do. So what are the sort of more to-dos that, that Steve Broomhead is thinking about? Um, well, at some point, um, I, I can never, the concept of retirement really never enters my mind. But at some point, 
I'm told by others, my own family, you've got to think about it, Stephen, and I will but I'll always continue to work doing something because I'm very driven. But I'm very driven, hopefully, by the rights of the values and want the rights of outcomes. So um, I'll continue to do um, my work at the council for probably another couple of years, Frank. I'll come in and see you and I'll take my career's advice. You're a pretty good, very good career teacher, Frank. I could have a chat with you about what I'll do next. I'll always be doing something. As long as my health's all right, as long as I and other people think I'm added value, I will carry on doing whatever I'm doing. Well, Steve, it's been great to have you in the downtown den. Um, and I look forward to the next chapter of your journey. I'm sure we'll be involved in some way. And, you know, just um, for the record, really, a huge thank you from me for all the support that you've given on a personal level, but also in terms of the support you've given to downtown and business as well. Yeah, well, it's been good to work with you, Frank. Ernie, sorry, yeah, you will, you will with Everton. It's always giving you so much stressful for all the years I've known. <laughs> yeah, and after the weekend, and it's not got much better, but there you go. Hopefully, the new year will bring a little bit more um, success to Goodison Park. We'll see. Thanks, Steve. Great to see you. Okay, thank you. Cheers. So that was me and Mr. Steve Broomhead, the Chief Executive of Warrington Borough Council, the Chair of Warrington Walls Rugby League Club. Uh, chewing the faff for about 40 minutes or so and talking about a whole range of issues there, of course, both past and present, and looking towards a future that may be tough and challenging as far as local government, certainly in Steve's world. Uh, but nonetheless, with somebody like Steve uh, at the helm in Warrington, then I'm sure that we will start to see as many solutions as we do have problems we move into 2023. It was also good to be reminded of the fantastic work that the Northwest Development Agency did during his time as chief executive there. And I still shake my head in wonderment as to why the government decided to scrap the development agency in this part of the world. But hey-ho, they did, and we are where we are. So let's look forward to 2023 and hope that we have a few more local authority chief executives who have the sort of entrepreneurial spirit and the boldness that Steve Broomhead has to move us into what we all hope will be a brighter future. So that was Steve Broomhead with me, Frank McKenna, the group chairman and chief executive of Downtown and Business in the Downtown Den. Join us next week when we've got a real legend for you to listen to. Not that Steve isn't a legend, but this is a real, genuine, nine-carat gold legend. It's Lord Michael Heseltine. I'm sure you'll all love listening to what Michael has to say. So that's me with Lord Heseltine in the Downtown Den podcast next week. Downtown in Business is the fastest-growing business organisation in the UK. Working with decision-makers from over a 1,000 companies across the country, in Liverpool, Lancashire, Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham, Cheshire, Wolverhampton, Newcastle and London, with more locations to follow. Through an extensive and exciting events programme and through our social media platforms, we connect our members with other businesses who can help them grow. And we engage with senior politicians and officials at local, regional and national level to promote business-friendly policies. To join Downtown in Business, 
please visit our website. That's ullawsdowntownandbusiness.com. Why don't you get involved with the fastest growing business organisation in the UK?